Coming up on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we have the um, uh, great good fortune to talk to the great Jimmy Roberts of NBC Sports, um, who has won numerous Emmy Awards over a um, tremendous uh, 40-plus year career in the industry. Um, golf is his main portfolio, um, and uh, but but far from all he's done, um, he has been to uh, a remarkable 18 Olympic Games in his career, um, and uh, uh, covered a number of other events. Um, and um, uh, we we talk about all that. We talk about his time at ABC Sports um, uh, because initially he was not. Um, as golf focused, he evolved into that role as as we'll talk about um, with him. But um, uh, we ended up spending um, a fair amount of time talking about the non golf aspects of his career, which I was really uh, found interesting and fun to talk about because it brought back lots of memories for me of ABC Sports back in the day, Wide World of Sports, Howard Cosell, Jim McKay. Rune Arledge, all those, you know, incredible luminaries um, that um, may not mean much to some of the younger folks listening to this, but for for me and for Jimmy, which we're not too far apart in age, um, those were real giants. And um, we talk about um, uh, him working with those folks at the start of his career and and then how he evolved into golf and and, and the book he wrote, Breaking the Slump About Golf. We'll, we cover all of that. Um, uh, but a fun conversation. Um, he was wonderful to talk to, and uh, I really enjoyed it and hope uh, you enjoyed it as well. Upcoming, Jimmy Roberts of NBC Sports. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and it is my great honor and pleasure today to have with us the great Jimmy Roberts um, from NBC Sports. Um more Emmys than I can count, 13, I think, maybe more. Um, just a tremendous career. Um, Jimmy, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Larry, it's my pleasure. Always love to talk golf. <laughs> so um, uh, let's go back uh, kind of to the beginning of golf for you. Um, and um, you grew up, I think, in the White Plains area. Um, and you had both parents were avid golfers. And sounds like you got... Um, an early start on the game. I did. So um, both my mom and my dad uh, played golf. And when I was much younger, at the very, very kind of earliest stages of my childhood, they belonged to a country club. And so I had the benefit of, you know, fond memories of every weekend kind of tagging along my dad and going to the club and Actually, one year somehow won the nine-hole junior championship, ah. um, and um, and so that was the very beginning. But um, as I as I kind of moved through high school, uh, the folks didn't belong to a club anymore, and I played most of my golf and municipal courses around the Westchester area, and actually kind of fell in with a bunch of a bunch of people from one of my first jobs as an, I was a newspaper reporter was one of my first jobs and we would work all night. It was a PM paper, an afternoon paper. Yep. So we would put the bed, the paper to bed by, you know, three or four in the morning, 
you know, we would kind of convene to some bar with, because it's New York and the bars were open. You're right. Um, <laughs> and we would hang around until it was time to go to the golf course. And then we'd play a bunch of golf. Oh, and fun. so I just uh, kind of have been around golf my whole life. And then, you know, on and on and on. But uh, that's how it started for me. That's great. And, and I'm um, not from Westchester, but not too far away from you. I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. So I know sure. the Northeast pretty well. Um, and of course, Westchester has so many wonderful, wonderful courses. And if I, I, I think you did a little caddying right at Fenway, which is one of the great, you know, Tillinghast has so many great courses in Westchester County, but that's one of them. Um, so what was that experience like? It was formative. Um, and uh, I have very fond memories that Fenway was about two blocks away from my house. Uh, I caddied there. I also caddied at another place a little bit farther away called Westchester Hills. Okay. And then another place which is no longer around called Ridgeway Golf Club. Westchester Hills and Ridgeway were right across the street from each other. But, you know, I was a kid looking to, you know, make money and caddying was a good thing to do. It was a good, honest day's work. And uh, so I did that a bunch. I did a lot of things when I was younger jobs, but uh, yeah, fond memories of caddying at Fenway and, and, you know, it's really fond memories. Uh, I have some friends now who are members there. Okay. And so to go back, I went back it's about two years ago for the first time in maybe 50 years. Wow. Wow. And it was just fabulous. Um, you know, it was really, it was really, really great. And I do have to say, yeah. one of the things that I did that, it, that made me happiest was while we were on the golf course, I violated a rule. I took out a phone and uh, I called the local deli and I ordered lunch for the entire caddy yard. Oh, so, good for you. That's great. Well, you know something? I had just That made me feel so good. I bet. I bet. Good for you. That's great. Um, so um, uh, you're sort of like me. I mean, you're an avid golfer. It didn't sound like you were like, into sort of the junior competitive world in a huge way, which I wasn't. I wasn't good enough. Yeah, neither was I. Um, and uh, of course, you know, I, it's funny. I sit here today. I mean, you and I aren't too far apart in age. And I, I look at the American Junior Golf Association. It's like a PGA tour now for these young kids. It was that the AJGA was literally just getting started. But like you, it wasn't really relevant for me. I just, I just loved the game and. Like you, I, we belong to a club in, um, in the Hartford area, and um, I just have great memories as a teenager playing um, so many rounds of golf a year. Um, uh, but uh, so you, um, I know you went on, um, you went to college at Maryland. Um, when did you kind of first have your inkling that you were going to sort of go the, I'll call it the, the journalism slash, you know, I mean, it's broader than that, obviously, but that kind of route in life? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a good question. So I knew I wanted to be involved in sports. And back when I was in high school and in college, I mean, I know this may be hard for some of your listeners to understand. Others will completely get this. There was no such thing as sports center, right. you know, and the <laughs> biggest show around was something called wide world of sports. Right. And, um, you know, it was every Saturday from 4.30 to 6 on ABC, which ironically doesn't even broadcast sports anymore, right, except when right. they put things on that are produced by ESPN. Right. You know, what was so odd to me was because in my youth, 
ABC not only broadcast sports, ABC sports was sports. Totally. And so I grew up as a kind of a product of watching that and admiring all those guys watching the Olympics and Jim McKay and Howard Cosell and Keith Jackson, yep. you know, back then college football was exclusively on ABC yep. uh, every Saturday afternoon. So I guess that was formative. I was, um, let's see, my dad was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. He had grown up in Brooklyn. He was a season ticket holder. So uh, in the early sixties, when uh, National League Baseball came back to New York. He was thrilled. He took me. I became a Met fan, sadly. Uh, <laughs> to this day, I've passed that along to my kids. Um, but I guess when I went to college, I thought I wanted to do something in sports television, or uh, that was my dream. You know, and the funny thing was back then, there weren't a lot of kids who wanted to do that. Today, Right. I mean, I had a phone call today with a kid from our local high school who wants to do that. Everybody wants yep. to do that. So true. And I and I get it. And in some ways today, it's easier. And in some ways today, it's harder. But, you know, that was my dream. Um, you know, I'll try and make a, a long story short, but okay. I played lacrosse in high school and I was a decent enough lacrosse player to have attracted a little bit of interest, a very little bit of interest from the University of Maryland, which was the defending national champion. Yeah, they the were time. great, right. And um, I convinced myself that I was going to go play there. Of course, I was in way over my head. Went there, got cut from the team, and then ended up kind of broadcasting it on the radio because back then there weren't a lot, an awful lot of people who were terribly familiar with the sport, let alone the players on the team. And I you know, knew them, all of them, from having just you know, spent a bunch of time with them. So I ended up uh, being the radio broadcaster for WMUC, which is the Maryland radio station, doing lacrosse. And that year, sure enough, Maryland ends up in the NCAA championship again against Cornell, and it's on Wide World of Sports. Oh, wow. So I see an opportunity, and um, I was pretty, um, I, I would call it headstrong, but I was uh, determined back then. So I just looked it up in the phone book. Again, another reference for something that doesn't exist any longer. <laughs> and I found out that the number for ABC Sports, and I'll never forget this, was 212-LT17777. So I just called there, cold call, kind of navigated my way. That was obviously the switchboard. I navigated my way to the sports department, was able to kind of navigate my way to the guy who was producing the game. And after two or three phone calls where it was clear that I was bothering him. He, I'll never forget. His name was Ned Stackle. And he said, stop bothering me. Call my production assistant. His name's John Coulter. And that was it. So I called his production assistant, John Coulter, who was only more, more than happy to hire me to have someone come up there and sit in the back of the truck and help them understand what was going on in this game that nobody sure. had ever heard of before. Sure. Um, and that was the start of it. Throughout college, I worked for ABC Sports as what we used to call a gopher. Yeah. You go for this, you go for that. And little did I know at the point, there was a, basically a formalized program where they would hire temporary labor to travel from event to event to help them out in production. And that's what I did all throughout college. Um, and, you know, there was a hierarchy there. 
and I kind of inched my way up the hierarchy through college. And when I graduated, didn't know what I was going to do. I was waiting tables in a restaurant in Maryland. I decided I would give ABC Sports a try. So I called up the only production assistant who was there that I knew who had been there back then was a guy named Sean McManus. Oh, Sean McManus has two distinctions. Right. Distinction number one, he was the son of Jim McKay. Right. But of greater significance, Sean McManus these days and for the last two decades, at least maybe more, has been the chairman of CBS Sports. Right. Absolutely. Um, but back then, he was just a production assistant looking That's for help. So I called funny. him. I knew him. Wow. I got hired. And that was how it started. I, you know, I left my job as a waiter and kind of went on the road, the traveling circus. And um, eventually, before the Olympics happened in Lake Placid, uh, 1980, February, I got hired as a full-time employee. That's fascinating. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I was addicted to ABC Wide World of Sports, a classic, you know, intro, the, you know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, that poor fellow, you know. His name was Vinko Vogataj. Right. And right. I actually met him. You've met him. What, yeah, what, I sat what next to him at dinner. Really? Yeah. We did a, I, I want to say it was probably like the 20th anniversary of Wide World of Sports. It was a black tie show done from the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And uh, he was one of the guests because, and, and by the way, anybody who's watching this or listening to this, go and look up the following phrase on Google, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. This was the guy who was the agony of defeat. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I've forgotten this is horrible. Came from some Eastern European country. He was um, a ski, not a ski jumper, but a ski flyer. And it was on a ski flying hill in, I want to say, Planica, Yugoslavia, because there was a Yugoslavia at the time. But he had this horrible fall and it became iconic. You know, iconic. the agony of defeat. And that that was part of the intro for for years and years and years of ABC Wild World of Sports. So, um, and yeah, I mean, so many luminaries back then with ABC Sports. I'm just uh, listening to you. I have such memories of all those um, with their those mustard yellow colored blazers, and you know, from from Monday Night Football to all the different events they would cover. So, you mentioned the Lake Placid um, Olympics, sort of when you just had gotten hired. Um, is it true? I read somewhere. Is it true that you went to the Miracle on Ice game, but left before the end? Is that true? Well, you know, so how many years ago is that? That's 42 years ago yeah, now. Long time. So at one point, I was convinced that was true. Um, I do remember that I went to one of the USA hockey games. I snuck in because back then, this is obviously long before 9-11, long before you know, security as we know it today, basically right. snuck in a back door with my credential and left before the end of the game because I had met a girl and she told me she was going to be at the game and she wasn't at the game. So I left. Um, I got to be honest with you, all these years later, I'm not sure if it was the Miracle on Ice game or it was just one of the American hockey games. It certainly yeah. makes for a better story if it was the Miracle on Ice game. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, the um, So, Let's talk a little bit. So you're, you're hired by ABC. So we're in the early 80s. And um, at some point, I think you end up working for Howard Cosell 
on his sports beat program, which must have been quite an experience. What was that like? You know, it's funny. I mean, I was so wide eyed at that point, and I had been in the industry for four or five years at this point. But again, I mean, people don't know who Howard Cosell is. People our age do, but people don't know who Howard Cosell is. I'll tell you a quick story, Larry. Please. A few years ago, I was, um, you know, every year for the last five, six years, we've gone, we being NBC Sports, we go to Austin, Texas to broadcast the Dell, the WGC World Golf Championship Dell Match Play Tournament. And a friend of mine from my days at ABC Sports, a guy named Joel Lulla, who was one of our lawyers, and who also, by the way, has the distinction of um, he won the Westchester Amateur Golf Championship, so a very good player. But mm. um, Joel teaches in the communication school at UT Austin, and he asked me to come by. He asked me to come by a couple of times, speak to his class. So I went by one year, spoke to his class, and it was about 100 kids in there. And these were all kids who eventually hoped to be in sports media. And so Joel asked me to get started by telling him, telling the class a little bit about myself, ABC Sports. I'd give him the same deal that I've just given you. And at some point I mentioned Howard Cosell. And as I'm saying his name, I'm looking around the room and I get a bunch of blank stares. And I kind of stop myself mid-sentence and I say, hold on, let me see a show of hands. How many people in this room have heard of Howard Cosell? And if there were 100 kids in the room, maybe 15 raised their hand. Wow, wow. Which was to me incomprehensible, yeah. Because the, I, it's I'm of the opinion that there is he is the biggest star in the history of sports media. No one's ever been bigger. Not possible. Yeah, he was I think that's fair. Culturally iconic. Uh, he went so far beyond sports. I mean. Howard used to joke and he would say, I'm one of the three C's of television. There's Cronkite, Carson, and Cosell. And he was right. <laughs> Walter Cronkite, Johnny Carson, and Howard yeah. Cosell. The three, yeah. you know, maybe the three biggest names in television in, you know, from maybe 1965, six, seven through maybe 1980. Yeah, I think um, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. So I, but to go, to go back, I, yes, I ended up working for Howard. I was working for ABC sports. I had gone to work for ABC news for two years. Um, back at that time, a man named Rune Arledge was yeah. the president of both the of news and sports divisions. Yeah. Famous, famous. And, yeah. and um, so he, um, he was looking to create this hybrid unit, which was uh, two people from news and two people from sports working together, embedded in the news department, serving the common interests of both divisions. So that, you know, news had a, an international logistical presence so that if sports wanted to do a story on a swimming star from Dortmund, Germany, fine, just call the news division and get their bureau in Munich to send a crew over there. On the other hand, if the news division encountered a story about sports, you know, they didn't have a lot of people there who were expert or familiar with sports issues. So this little news sports desk would kind of 
help the news division kind of figure that out. And there were lots of cases where we did that for the news division. You know, NFL, I remember the NFL, USFL lawsuit. lawsuit. Sure, right. Um, you know, I was assigned to that every day um, for the news division. So anyway, I did work for Howard and Rune Arledge kind of plucked me from there to do that. Um, and it was fantastic. I uh, got a lot of great experience, worked for Howard. You know, Howard was like being around the biggest star of the biggest stars. So I was a little, I was more than a little bit starstruck, but, you know, after a year or so working for him, it became, you know, just the guy that I worked for. And there, you know, there were lots of amusing moments from working for Howard. He was uh, <laughs> I can only a remarkable, imagine. A, a remarkable man, one of the smartest people I've ever known, a, one of the unhappiest people I've ever known. Yeah. Um, one of the most charming people. I just, there were so many superlatives about him. You know, people ask me all the time, what'd you learn from Howard? Well, yeah. I actually did learn something. The takeaway was that Howard could do the most hard hitting interview with somebody and not lose them. And that's really, really hard in my industry over the years. I've had to ask people some pretty tough questions. And more often than not, that kind of excommunicated me. I mean, years later, I mean, it took me 20 years for Tiger Woods and I to, you know, have a conversation again after right. I right. asked him some rather hard hitting questions that he didn't want to hear. Right. But, right. you know, Howard had a way of talking to people and asking them what needed to be asked, but still commanding their respect. Now, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was Howard Cosell, yeah. you know, and he was a bigger star than almost anybody he spoke to, right. you know, and people again may not know it, but he and Muhammad Ali had a symbiotic relationship yeah. where one hand washed the other and they both were good for one another. And they had something of a circus act, but it was pretty amazing. So, but they were, they were heady times for a kid in his, you know, mid twenties. And I'm just so incredibly fortunate to have had that as part of my life. I just, when I think back on it, I just kind of amazed me. No, I'm sure. I, you know, I'm trying to think of the chronology. I mean, that book he wrote that I know he got a lot of, uh, I never about played it. the game okay. with right. Pete Bonventry. Right. He was actually right. writing it when I was working for him. That's what I was going to ask you. Okay. So you were there at that point. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. He got a lot of flack for that. I know. Yeah. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it is hard. I mean, just echo a lot of what you're saying. I mean, it is hard for people to certainly appreciate what a star he was. And also, and again, you know, this better than I do, you know, before TV became so fragmented before sports center, before ESPN, what an event Monday night football was when those three would roll into town with Meredith and, and Gifford and him. I mean, it was just, there's really nothing I can think of that's comparable to that today because everything is so fragmented. I mean, to have week to week, that was just such an event, right? For people. Yeah. Well, I think um, Don used to call it brother loves traveling circus, you know, and again, <laughs> they were an interesting threesome, but it was the biggest deal in town. And again, you got to remember there were, I mean, I don't even remember how many teams there were in the league back then. But there were football was Sunday afternoon and one game on Monday night. Right. And Monday night was a happening, uh, just right. an absolute happening. And <clears throat> quite frankly, part of it had to do with the fact that it involved people like Cosell. And, you know, it's funny. I think that 
you know, through the years working in this industry, people say, well, you know, people don't tune into a game for the announcers. And it's true. They tune into the game for the game or the, you know, the golf tournament for the golf tournament. And I, I think that that was one of the true exceptions. I mean, I think there were people who turned in for the entertainment value. Oh, for sure. Of, you know, yeah. what would you get from Cosell? You know, it's really quite something. Absolutely. Um, so so you're there um, for quite a I mean, with ABC and ESPN uh, for quite a while, um, all the way up until 2000. So we've been talking a lot about not golf stuff, but obviously you gravitated to golf. So maybe talk to me how NBC will we'll get to, of course, in the golf channel and all that. But while you're at ABC and ESPN, how did you go from working for Howard, your joint assignment for the news division, all the things you talked about, to migrating over and having golf become a significant part of your portfolio? Uh, it was happenstance, Larry. So really, okay. Here, here's what happened. So when you worked on staff for ABC, the production schedule came out every month and you just did whatever you were assigned to. I used to do college football and motorcycles on ice in Inzel, West Germany and the Grand Prix of Monaco and Monte Carlo, uh, Monday night baseball. I mean, you're just every season, another sport. And the golf tour was different. It was different because it required specific knowledge and uh, kind of an awareness and understanding of what the protocols were. And so there was a group that worked on golf. The producer was a guy named Chuck Howard. The director was a guy named Terry Jastro, whose son, by the way, is now one of our directors. Oh, really? Um, wow. <laughs> yes. But, um, and so Chuck Howard, who was also a senior vice president of ABC, was one of the people responsible for having hired me. So one year, it was actually 1980. Yeah, 1980. I first got hired in 1980. I was made a production assistant on golf. And part of it had to do with the fact that my introduction to ABC Sports had been at a golf tournament. You know, well, you know, my later introduction when I had called Sean McManus was to go work at a golf tournament. And I worked as a gopher on several golf tournaments. So the production assistants knew me. So in all likelihood, you know, they must have gone to Chuck or Chuck must have gone to them and say, who do we have as our next production assistant? They said, you know, Jimmy Roberts has worked with us. I became a production assistant. And back then we did not have very many golf tournaments. And the, the oddity of it was that the very first golf tournament we did every year was the U.S. Open. So we didn't have any PGA Tour events. All we had was the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, and the British Open. I'm trying to think if there was anything else we had. That was it. So, um, I mean, I'm just, let me just interject. I'm trying to think. I, I have memories from my childhood going back before 1980 that ABC used to telecast like the yes. Crosby and other stuff. But yes. it must be the cut. They must have lost that when they had the, the cut, the contract that was in a uh, in force in 1980 was uh, around, I guess, because I, I yeah, once upon a time, been what happened. Yeah. Cause during, I, I, during I, have, period, I remember Byron Nelson going back yes, to ABC and Chris yes. Shankle and all yeah, those. There you guys. Go. So, okay. Yeah. So that's before that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but during the time that I was there, the only golf we had were three major championships. So I was kind of drafted to work on that. I worked on, you know, those tournaments. And so, and then, 
throughout my time at ABC worked on, didn't work on the golf tour forever, but worked on it a bunch. So when I left ABC in 1988 to go to work for ESPN, uh, I, I remember that there were people who, I was a field reporter as opposed to like the Chris Bermans and the Tom Mees and John Saunders and people like that who were the in-studio anchors. I was a field reporter traveling from place to place doing, and as a matter of fact, I was the first staff field reporter when they hired somebody and said, hmm, maybe we should have reporters. <laughs> so um, I remember I had been there a couple of years and people had kind of staked out their kind of territory. Uh, I remember that Carl Ravitch, who was back there when I was there, he wanted to cover baseball. So anytime there's a big baseball story, he got out from behind the anchor desk and went and covered it. And Carl's still there. And he's actually, you know, the voice of Sunday Night Baseball now. Right. Um, Chris Berman, you know, threw his body over the NFL. Right. And <laughs> there were people doing various things, but nobody had any interest in golf. And I think I recognized that if I was going to kind of make a mark there, I had to stake out some territory. I remember suggesting to them that we should go cover the Ryder Cup and the masters and we did uh and that became my beat and i don't know that anybody outside of the masters and we didn't even go to the Ryder cup very often but outside of the masters nobody really cared about golf until 1996 yeah. and then when tiger arrived i had been established as the golf guy you know and tiger arrived and you know the world blew up and um then we covered a lot of golf and that was me and it was a great thing for me. Um, and as a matter of fact, it's one of the things that helped get me my job at NBC because at the time, Tiger was such a big deal. And uh, there were circumstances. Dick Enberg was leaving uh, NBC to go to CBS because CBS had gotten the NFL contract. Right. And Dick not only covered golf, but he also used to do a segment at the Olympics where he would do feature stories and he was gone there was a big sponsor for the olympic feature stories so dick ebersole who was running yep. nbc came and knocked on my door and said i'd like you to do golf and feature stories at the olympics are you interested yes i am and that was 22 years ago and i'm still there wow 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 um that's awesome and um so um so now we're turned to NBC. So now golf becomes much more, it, it seems like much more of a much bigger percentage of what you're doing, maybe even your entire focus, but you've got sort of golf channel and NBC. So, but I know you do other things too. I mean, I think you've seen, you've, you know, Notre Dame football, Wimbledon, the Olympics still, but golf has still got to be the main thing at this point, right? Yeah, I do more golf than anything else. I do the Olympics every time it comes around. I've been to 18 Olympic games. Wow. So um, yeah, I actually think I'm the leader of the clubhouse at NBC uh, since Peter Diamond retired last year. He was our senior vice president of something or other, but he had been to 20 something Olympics. So, yeah, but 18 Olympics now. Um, yeah, I did Wimbledon for 10 years. I did Notre Dame football for a number of years, the halftime show. I've done, you know, college basketball and football halftimes. Um, we did a little bit of baseball. I was a sideline reporter on that when I first got there. You know, whatever they want, I'll do. I still contribute occasionally to NBC News, to 
Willie Geist show on Sunday morning or to the Today Show. Done some of that. Um, you know, I've written a couple of books. Yeah, uh, wrote a hockey book sure. with Mark Messier that just came out this year. Yeah. Um, wrote a golf book 10, 12 years ago called Breaking the Slump. Uh, what else? I read a column for a magazine in New York. Um, other than that, not much. Not much. I, I want to talk, well, we're going to get to Breaking the Slump, which I, I loved. I, I, um, I read and um, it, it, it's particularly, I went back and looked at it because it's really interesting to look at it through the passage of time with some of the people you cover. But um, let me just ask you, before we sort of dive into that, um, you're, I'm trying to think what the number would be. Your mid-career change like this. So 2000, you would have been probably 43. I was 30. Or th- I, well, my, in 1988, I was, I was 30. Right. But when you changed networks to go, because I know ABC and ESPN are kind of under the same umbrella, but when you actually right. changed to go to NBC, I mean, you're sort of mid-career then, right? I mean, oh, was yeah. that, was that um, I mean, it's a great gig and everything. I mean, but I mean, was there a little stress saying, gee, I got a whole new group of folks I need to sort of impress. I mean, I would think that would have been a little, even though it's a great opportunity, obviously made a great decision, but was there a little stress in sort of making that big a change at that point? Oh, enormous stress. I mean, think about moving. That's right. basically what happened. I moved, you know, as a kid who moved from one place to another. So a lot of stress, but I've made a lot of good friends and I've remained friendly with a, with a bunch of, with my friends from, uh, from, um, uh, from ESPN and even still friendly with my friends from ABC, you know, from all those years ago. Yeah. So it was stressful, but it was, it, you know, and listen, when I left ESPN, ESPN wasn't what it is today. I mean, it had really become a cultural presence, right. but I mean, you could argue that right after I let, left, it became ubiquitous. Um, <laughs> there are still people who, you know, pass people in an airport and, you know, my wife laughs and pass somebody in an airport and I'll hear somebody say, da, 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 da. Really? Even now, after all that time? Yeah, but they're usually old people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, oh, well, ESPN is a whole unbelievable story. I mean, particularly grew up in West Hartford. Bristol's not too far away. I mean, it's amazing what it it has become. So let's talk a little about the book. So, um, which I know is, you know, it was back in 2009, so it's not recent, but it's such an interesting book. So it's called Breaking the Slump. So for people who haven't read it, so it's, you devote a chapter to um, each, a whole raft of different players and, and not all golfers. I mean, you know, some other folks, you know, who kind of went through slumps and what that was like such an interesting approach for a golf book. What gave you the idea to do that for your, for the book? Well, I had become friendly with a literary agent who was after me to try and write a book. But the understanding was that you can't write a book until you have just the right idea. And so we knocked back and forth a couple of ideas. And I vividly remember I was in a parking lot in Yonkers, New York on a rainy day and just was so disconsolate about my the state of my golf game, which had kind of sunk to horrible lows. And I thought to myself, that's it, you know, because there are two types of people in the world. There are two types of golfers in the world. Those who've had a slump 
and those who are going to have Islam. Right. Exactly. And it doesn't matter who you are, you <laughs> know, true. and I always used to joke when I was on tour publicizing the book or giving speeches about it, I would say, you know, Jack Nicholas and I are exactly alike. It's just a matter of degree. When Jack's struggling, he loses the ball to the left. When I'm struggling, I lose the ball. So <laughs> it's really something that's universal. And I was also in a good position where I had, you know, again, here's an outdated term. I had a Rolodex full of names that I could just call and talk to about it. And so the book was 20 chapters, a prologue and an epilogue surrounded by that were sandwiched around 18 basic profiles of people who had gone through terrible slumps and what they had done to kind of exact themselves from the slump. And it was 16 professional golfers, uh, one Olympic athlete, Dan Jansen, who loves the right. game of golf and has yeah. through the years become a very good friend. And one U.S. president, George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st right. president of the United States, who I met um, through doing a story. And I, it would be presumptuous to say that we became friends, but we struck up uh, an acquaintance and, um, you know, kept in touch. And he consented to do a chapter with me. It was fascinating and uh, one of the great honors of my lifetime. Yeah, I, let's talk about that for a minute, because I could certainly tell that in rereading through the book. I mean, what was that like? You went up, did you, if I remember right, you, did you go play with him at Cape Arundel up there in, in May? I did. So initially I met President Bush in 1997. The U.S. Open was at Congressional in Washington, and I wanted right. to do a story on the history of presidential golf. And so I knew somebody who worked in his administration. By this time he was out of office, but I knew somebody who worked in his administration. And I called him up and I said, do you think I could, you know, convince the president to do an interview with me for my story for Sports Center on the history of presidential golf. Because he has, you know, for those who don't know, both his father and grandfathers were presidents of the United States Golf Association. And he, you know, he was knee deep, his family's knee deep in golf. But Walker sure. Cup Walker is Cup, right. actually exactly. named after his family. Right. So right. my friend, whose name is Dorrance Smith, uh, worked with him at ABC News. He said, well, let me find out. So I got a phone call from, I never forget, I got a phone call from the, from, you know, from the office of the president, you know, uh, is this Jimmy Ryan? This is before texts, before letter, you know, I mean, no text, no emails. Um, yes, I'm looking for Jimmy Roberts. This is the office of President Bush. You know, you don't get many calls like that. You know, the president would be happy to speak with you. Um, and uh, he'd like to know if you would, how would you like to come to, to Maine and play golf with him? So... And as a matter of fact, I can show you on the wall behind me. I yeah, have virtually please. no, I have no, I'm going to do a little moving camera here. I have yeah. no memorabilia in my house. This is one of the only things I have. It's from that day. So, can you oh, see and you that? got the dollar signed by him too, right? Yeah, well, that's because he insisted on playing for a dollar. So, and he signed it. And there's the scorecard, which at the time was my best score ever. What did I shoot? 83. Wow. Since uh, better. Um, there's a picture of the president and myself that some, there was photographers out on the course and there's a personal note from, oh, wow. Look at from that. 41 when he sent me the dollar back because I was too timid to ask him if he would sign it there. There were a couple of secret service agents there and, you know, people may or may not know. I think the secret service at the time was in the department of, uh, uh the treasury 
yeah. alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, but right. um, I thought it was illegal to deface currency, so I didn't want to ask him to sign it. I was told that it was okay, and he sent me the dollar sign um, with that kind of note. That's really, I have won something in my closet from the Ryder Actually, I've won something in my closet from the Ryder Cup and a picture of myself with Nicholas Palmer and uh, player. But other than that, that's that's all I've got in the house. And that's the other stuff's in my closet. But I'm proud to have this it in my office. Be. That's awesome. Yeah, it was quite um, a day. And, I, you know, and and, you know, from stuff I've read over the years about him playing up there, he plays very quickly. I'm sure you must have experienced that as well. Right. He's famous for those speed rounds. Yeah, was he, calls it cart, he calls it cart polo, or he called it cart polo. <laughs> what a wonderful man, though. Such a great day. Really enjoyed oh, it. Could not have been more gracious with myself and my crew. But anyway, we struck up, you know, an acquaintance. And, you know, when I had this idea to write the book, um, and I saw him also at the, I saw him, um, where was it? At the... Um, at Valderrama. Now, was that before or after? So that would have been June. Yeah. And I saw him at Valderrama at the Ryder Cup in 1997. And um, I crossed paths with him a couple of times that I went over to say hello and, you know, which I'm sure alarmed the Secret Service. Um, but, <laughs> you know, enough of a, of a relationship so that when I came time to write the book, I knew how to get in touch with him. And I did. And he couldn't have been any better about it. I went down to Houston, spent some time with him um, and did that chapter for the book. And he's really, he was really something. That's awesome. What a wonderful experience for you. Um, I'm curious and going to going through the book and, and, and re rereading it and just flipping through it. Um, how you came up with that list you did, because I mean, when I look at it, um, they all certainly qualify, but, uh, but, you know, I think through golf and some of the other people who have had some just bewildering slumps, career ending slumps, um, people who are supernovas in the game and then just flamed out as quickly as they were burning bright. Um, and I mean, did you have others you thought about putting in? I mean, it must have you must have had a call from a larger list, I would think. Yeah, there were others. Um, and they said no. And oh, here's what so I found. Okay. Gotcha. Here's what I find. When you've had a terrible slump and you've come through it, you've seen, you know, you've seen God and you want to share. But if you've had a terrible slump and for some reason it ruins you, I don't think you're really willing to. What I found for the sense. most part is people don't really want to talk about it and share because they look at it as kind of a either a humiliation or a defeat. But, you know, so there was some of that. Um yeah, but there were a couple people. I, I'm going to let them remain nameless. Sure. But I appreciate that. There, yeah, there were a couple of people who I reached out to who just didn't want to do it. But I had, you know, like I said, I had a pretty big Rolodex back then. So I could call Jack Nicholas. I could call Arnold Palmer. And as a matter of fact, Arnold, who I had a very good relationship with, um, when my literary agent said, you know, that's a great idea for a book. You're going to have to write a sample chapter on spec and then come up with an outline and i thought he said but you if you're going to write a sample chapter it's going to be on someone it's got to be a big enough name um, that it's going to attract attention so i called arnold and arnold was more than happy to do you know the work with me wow. and it wasn't all that much work but i mean he, he was great 
and I had a great relationship with him. And I so basically sold the book on the basis of the chapter I wrote on Arnold Palmer. Got it. Got it. Um, and and I'm not surprised that that would sell the book. Um, so let's maybe just talk, turn to some of the stuff that you've covered and some of the people you've covered um, in golf. Um, you've covered so many memorable events. I mean, it's probably hard to sort of try to sort of uh, land on what is near the top of the list. I mean, I think of some of the Ryder Cups. I mean, you've, you've been done so many different things. What what would you, if you kind of had to say, gee, this is about the most memorable golf event I covered. I mean, is there anyone that sticks out for you? Well, the two most memorable things that I've ever been a part of happened at the Olympics. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of great golf things. I was there in 97 at Augusta, you know, when Tiger won that Masters. Right. Um, and I, you know, I'd have to think through time, all the other golf events I've been to that were pretty amazing. But the two events that I go back to that were the most memorable for me, and first, the most memorable thing that I've ever witnessed in terms of a sporting event was at the 1994 Lillehammer Olympic Games, the speed skating 1500 meters, Dan Jansen. Yeah. And for people who don't know the story, Dan was the Tiger Woods of sprint speed skating, right. but kept on at the biggest times, you know, encountered adversity, came up short. Um, his story was incredibly compelling. His sister died the day he was supposed to skate right. in Calgary in 1988, and he fell. It was on the cover of Time magazine, his head in his hands. I mean, if you Google Dan Jansen in images, yeah. You yeah. will see him in that gray and orange suit with his head and his hands on the ice. Right. Um, anyway, finally, in 1994, he wins his Olympic gold medal. And the story was just it was too much. I mean, he had come up short in the 500 meters, which he was supposed to win. And just the cacophony of criticism and scrutiny was just overwhelming. And he said, you know what, I've had it. I'm not going to skate this last race of mine you know, which was not even a specialty anymore. His coach, Peter Mueller, uh, convinced him to skate it. He did. Uh, he kind of fell in the second to last turn. He slipped in the second to last turn. There was this audible gasp in the arena. Um, crosses the line, world record, gold medal. And then as he's skating by, somebody's handing down something over the crowd, you know, and it's his baby daughter, Oh. who he then does a victory lap with the baby daughter who's named after his sister who had died when he fell in that first race. Wow. Anyway, Dan actually did a chapter with me in the book, but right. that's right. the most memorable thing I've ever seen in sports. It was just so, I mean, I don't want to say unlikely because in many ways he was a favorite. I think one of the hardest things to do in sports is win when you're supposed to. I agree. I and agree. Dan battled that his entire life and he finally got his gold medal. And, you know, he never lost his dignity throughout the whole thing. It was just remarkable. And then the other thing was in uh, 2002, when I came to NBC, Dick Ebersole gave me the honor of being the person to interview the torch lighters uh, at the opening ceremony. And, um, and uh, nobody knew who, it was, who knew who it was gonna be, but I did. And it was the U.S. Olympic hockey team from 1980. So there I am at the top of this stadium, you know, 80,000 people who were there. They're screaming. The You know, this is just after 9-11. There's this palpable sense of patriotism. And 
you know, up the, the stairs comes the torch, out from the side comes, you know, these American heroes, true American heroes. The stadium, I'm getting choked up now thinking about it. The stadium's chanting USA, USA, USA. Oh, wow. wow. And there I am interviewing Jim Craig and Mike Arruzzioni. Yeah. And it was an honor. And I just wish I had pictures of it. Um, oh, but it yeah, was for sure. Kind of remarkable. Yeah, that whole, I mean, you, you th I mean, I think back in my lifetime in terms of just sports events, I mean, that 1980 game against the Soviets and the Olympics and what those guys were. And, you know, after they got crushed in Madison Square Garden or the, or the Soviet team had crushed the NHL team, you know, a few weeks before they were so dominant. I mean, it, it's hard, you know, everything that was going on in the world. I mean, you just it's it's yeah, those guys are icons for sure. There's no doubt they about were. that. Some special. Um, very special. Um, just in terms of, you know, you've interviewed so many people over the years and so many golfers. Um, I know you, you, you touched on Tiger Woods. I know you guys, you were on the outs for a little bit. And before that got mended, that took a long time. You know, is there anyone who sort of sticks out either from your book or just from over the years that you sort of think of as kind of, you know, one of the most memorable folks you've interviewed or a particular interview at all? Jesus, hard to say. Um, I will say this. I've just written another book with Mark Messier, who right, I saw that. is an uh, yeah. amazing, amazing person. And he surprised me in many ways and impressed me in so many ways. Just a really remarkable leader. You know, and a lot of the things that he believes in are so simple. But I just for the life of me, I don't understand how we don't embrace some of his principles um, or some of the things that he believes in. And it just, he's a great guy and uh, we've become good friends, but I just, um, I marvel at some of, you know, of his wisdom, a lot of which is, you know, homespun. He never finished high school, but mm. he's a voracious, he's a voracious reader and um, incredibly principled and caring, which is remarkable when you consider how fierce and, intimidating in character he was on the ice but he's really something yeah he was i mean those edmonton teams those are unbelievable and then what he did with the rangers um <clears throat> let me um before i let you go i gotta turn to i can't lose the opportunity of having the good fortune of talking to you with what's going on in the world of golf today and not ask you about it um i'm sure you're probably tired of talking about it because it's all anyone talks about these days but i would love to hear kind of your thoughts as we sit here um today uh on live golf and kind of how you sort of see that um evolving i mean in my you know we're we're about the same age i started golf when i was nine i've been following it forever um i don't think in my lifetime um anything has rocked professional golf or the golf world quite like live has um and you know a lot of the story is still unfolding i'm sure we'll be in the courts on some of this stuff but Kind of, how do you sort of see it, and and where do you think we kind of are going to go from here? Um, I think it's complicated, and I don't know. Is my camera? Have, or can you still see me? I'm. You're you're good. Yeah, I there can we still go. See yeah, you. okay. Um, I think it's really complicated, Larry. Um, I do think my guess is it may end up in the courts, but you know there there are arguments on on all different sides of this thing. Um, you know, personally, 
I lost friends in 9-11. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I'm a journalist. You know, the fact that that regime is responsible for having kidnapped, murdered and dismembered a journalist yeah. is horrific to me. Horrific. Yeah. Um, now, that said, um, we do business with Saudi Arabia every single day, every single day. And so do many PGA Tour players and, you know, DP European tour players who've gone over for years to play in their tournaments. Right. And um, I don't know, personal preference. Um, you know, I would imagine, I think they've got some, some good ideas. I don't know how I feel personally about, you know, the whole idea of playing for all guaranteed money, although there's an additional money that you can earn. But look, you know, I'm a Matt fan. As we sit here and record this, I watched Matt Scherzer pitch last night. He's guaranteed $40 million this year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's guaranteed money in every sport, even the NFL these days, which didn't used to have guaranteed money. Right. Right. So, you know, why shouldn't golfers get guaranteed money? Um, I don't know. I, I just honestly don't know how I feel about it. The PGA Tour does so much incredible charitable work. They sure do. I mean, billions billions of charitable work and it is a true meritocracy so i you know i think that that is the best product there is right now and i believe in you know what they're about um but like i said it's so complicated it is so multifaceted it's just not a simple discussion to have yeah i don't disagree with that i mean for me i think you know the meritocracy point is one that is is big for me personally, just because the tour has always been, you know, you get what you earn. Um, and yeah. um, and with 72 whole events with, you know, and it's brutally difficult. I mean, I you know, the game as well as anyone. I mean, to get on the PGA Tour, to stay on there, I mean, it's yeah. brutally difficult. I mean, there's yeah. so many talented golfers, but that's the way it's kind of you know, I mean, we didn't used to have the all exempt tour, but, you know, it's always been a qualification process and you needed to stay up there and you didn't, you, you earned what you, as well as you played. And if you didn't play well, you didn't earn anything. And, and that, you know, and, and again, with the 72 holes, the cuts and all that stuff. And it's, um, I struggle a little bit because to me, um, this doesn't seem like true golf. And I, I think what's going to be interesting is where they go with the world ranking points. Um, and um, because, um, I think I will see what happens, but I have a feeling just listening to Martin slumber and the rest of the folks and I don't know, you know, and there's precedent for not giving them the world ranking points, at least the way it's configured that live is configured now and then over time you fall off that list I mean it won't be relevant for someone who has a lifetime or, or five year exemption because they're a recent major winner but the rest of these folks will fall off the list and because I think a lot of them are thinking well I'll just play these. 14 tournaments uh, next year and, and play the four majors. But um, I guess we'll see. It is difficult issue. For yeah, sure. Complicated, very complicated, very, very complicated to be sure. Um, Jimmy, I want to tell you, this has been fantastic. I really um, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat about all this stuff. Um, big fan, love watching your, your work um, on the golf channel on NBC and um Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about it. Larry, it's a pleasure. I always say the same thing when anybody uh, comes up to me and wants to talk about work. 
Thank you for watching. <laughs> My pleasure, Jimmy. I appreciate it.